Hey future doctors, thanks for joining me on Spoonful of Sugar, a podcast made for medical students by medical students to help the medicine go down. My name is Ria Mulherker. I'm a student at Drexel University College of Medicine, and I will be your host today. The topic of today's discussion is myocardial infarction. The board examiners just love going after this topic because there are so many questions that they can ask. So to help prepare you for the exam, I'm going to try and spend a lot of time going over the pathophysiology of myocardial infarctions. We'll talk about how they come about, how they present, what exactly happens when someone's having a heart attack. Um, We'll go over diagnostic techniques, a little bit about the management of MIs, uh, and then we'll also touch upon the complications that can happen after an MI. We will be covering a lot of ground in this review, and so um, you know if you need to split it up, listen to it in, in two parts, go ahead and do that. I'm going to do my best to keep you guys engaged by asking lots of open-ended questions. As always, it's my hope that you'll take the time to think about these questions, pause the video if you need a little bit of extra time to think about the answers, and um, I really think that as the more you interact, the more you're going to get out of this review. So. Myocardial infarctions. Who gets MIs? The answer is way too many people. Heart disease is the leading cause of death in the United States, and risk factors are kind of factors that we see every day in most of the people that we know. Obesity, diabetes, hypercholesterolemia, um, all of these factors can contribute to MI. And the incidence of MI is more common in men overall, However, it's important to note that the incidence rises in women significantly after menopause um, because they lose the protective effects of estrogen. Now, how does an MI actually happen? Um, You probably understand that there's some baseline level of atherosclerosis, and then a piece of atherosclerotic plaque can break off, lead to a thrombus, and it can completely occlude a blood vessel. So what happens once that blood vessel is occluded? Well, whatever cardiac muscle that blood vessel was supplying is going to start to die, right? Because it's not getting enough oxygen, it's not getting enough nutrients to survive. And we can kind of divide MIs into two different types based on how much cardiac tissue is affected. So what if the full thickness of the myocardial wall is affected? What's that called? That would be a transmural infarct. And what do we see on EKG for these? These are the ST elevation MIs, the STEMIs, and in the future, these can lead to the formation of pathologic Q waves. What if the full thickness is not affected? What part's going to get necrotic? That would be the subendocardial part. So these are called subendocardial infarcts, and it's actually the inner one-third of the myocardial wall. It's furthest away from the blood vessels, so it's most susceptible to damage. And the EKG finding in these... These are ST depression MIs, so we call these NSTEMIs, non-ST elevation MIs, and we don't see pathologic Q waves in the future with these. All right, so let's say we have a patient with all those wonderful risk factors we discussed earlier. They have an atherosclerotic plaque in one of their vessels, it breaks off, forms a thrombus, and clots one of their important coronary arteries. What symptoms are they going to have? So... Classically, uh, the chest pain is described as substernal. It can be like a crushing sensation. It can feel like someone's squeezing the chest. 
Um, it can also be pressure-like, like some, there's an elephant on someone's chest. Um, it classically radiates to the neck, jaw, arm, sometimes back, and it's usually on the left side. Other symptoms are dyspnea, uh, diaphoresis, weakness, fatigue, sense of impending doom. Sometimes people might faint. But what about, let's say an 80-year-old lady walks in, she has pretty severe abdominal pain and she has nausea, vomiting. What do we want to think about for her? Well, I'm mentioning her in the MI review, so we probably want to think about MI. And the reason is because in MI, especially in elderly patients and women, in post-op patients and diabetics, a lot of times uh, the symptoms of chest pain aren't quite typical. And a lot of times they can even be painless in up to one-third of patients. And so really there's a variety of symptoms. There's a, quite a variety in which patients can present. And MI is really serious, so you always want to have that on your radar. Once an MI occurs, there's quite a few changes that occur physiologically within the cardiovascular system. I think the easiest way to understand these changes is to think about what happens in cardiogenic shock. And cardiogenic shock often comes about as a result of MI because the heart just isn't working properly because it's not getting enough blood. So my first question to you uh, as we talk about cardiogenic shock is what is shock in the first place? What's the definition of shock? To keep it simple, shock is basically under perfusion of any of the tissues in the body. And you might know that there's quite a few different types of shock. Uh, we'll go over those some other time. But for now, I'd just like to focus on cardiogenic shock. What happens in cardiogenic shock, if you have to put it quite simply? Right, the heart's not getting enough oxygen, and so it's not functioning effectively as a pump, right? So in cardiogenic shock, there's a few parameters that are tested, so I'll just talk through those. The first one is cardiac index. Cardiac index is measured in liters per minute per meter squared. It's basically a fancy way of relating the cardiac output to the body surface area, but essentially it's a reflection of cardiac output. So what would happen to the cardiac index if the heart isn't working properly as a pump? It's going to decrease, right? The heart's not working, it's not going to be able to pump out blood, cardiac output will decrease. What about the pulmonary capillary wedge pressure? If you recall, that's the nice little thing that we measure using a Swan-Gans catheter. It is a good approximation of the left atrial pressure. What's going to happen to that PCWP? It's actually going to increase. If you think about it, it makes sense. The blood is not being pumped out of the left ventricle, and so it's going to accumulate back in the left atrium and in the pulmonary arteries, and so the pulmonary capillary wedge pressure is going to go up. And then finally, the systemic vascular resistance in cardiogenic shock. That's kind of equivocal to the afterload. That's going to increase, right? The heart's not pumping out enough blood, so you're probably going to get hypotensive. And so the arterioles are going to constrict as a response to maintain blood pressure. I realized that was probably a lot to process. So if any of it didn't make sense, go back, take another listen. Uh, if it still doesn't make sense, I might have to refer you to my friend Guyton. At this point, I'd like to switch gears and call upon some of the pathologists out there. This is your time to shine because we're going to talk about what happens to the heart at 
the gross and microscopic level throughout the course of an MI. As we go through this, I just want you to remember that myocardial infarction heals just like any other violation in the body. And so the same kinds of immune cells and the same kinds of processes that you learn about in other aspects of the body are utilized by the heart. Okay, so it's really not super complicated. It's just tested in scary ways. And so that's why it can sometimes be overwhelming. So myocardial infarction is an insult, and then the body has to recover from it, right? So what do you see if you were to look grossly at the heart, let's say in the first 24 hours after someone suffers an MI? If they were to, God forbid, die of an arrhythmia, and you were to do an autopsy and take a look at their heart, what would you see in the first 24 hours after an MI? The answer is probably no changes. You just see a completely normal looking heart at the macroscopic level. If you took a histology slide, looked at it under a light microscope, you might see a little bit of edema. You might see some early signs of coagulative necrosis. You might see something which are called wavy fibers. I just kind of think of it as the myocardium is loosening. Um, and then also within the first hour, something you might see if this person was taken to the cath lab or if they got TPA, uh, you might see something called reperfusion injury. So reperfusion injury happens because suddenly there's all this oxygen going into the myocardium and then you get, for some reason, an increased calcium reflux and this causes hypercontraction of the muscle fibers. So you get something that's called contraction band necrosis. Okay, so that's with reperfusion injury. And that's all kind of within the first 24 hours after an MI. Now, what about in the next, let's say, one to maybe three, four, five days? What are you going to see if you look at the heart at the gross level? So this one I think is funny because if you look grossly at the heart, it's going to look really red. And the first time I read that, I thought, okay, that's how I imagine a heart would look anyway. And the point is that it's hyperemic, so it's getting a lot more blood flow to the heart, and so it's redder than normal, okay? And then histologically, what you would see is more coagulative necrosis, and you'd see neutrophils start to come in. And that makes sense, right? Because neutrophils are kind of the first respondents. They always come in first. All right, so that's kind of the first few days after an MI. And then what about those first few days progressing into the next week or two? What would you see grossly? What changes? Let's say in the next 5 to 14 days. So grossly, what you're going to see is kind of a yellow-brown softening, okay? Um, and the heart is described as soft and yellow, and that really is a reflection of what's going on at the microscopic level. What is going on at the microscopic level? Right, so after neutrophils come the macrophages, right? And what do macrophages do? They make granulation tissue. So granulation tissue is that yellow-brown soft stuff, and that starts to form as it, part of the healing process. Okay, and then eventually moving forward, we're now at the two week mark, moving from weeks to months. What do we see in the long term? So, yeah, now the fibroblasts start to come in, they start depositing collagen, and eventually you get a complete scar formation. So, if you were to do an autopsy on someone who's had an MI maybe months or years ago, it's just going to kind of look like a white scar um, on an autopsy. Okay, so great. We've kind of covered what happens at the physiological level, at the pathological level, 
That's all great to know. It'll help us on the exam. But what about our patient? Our patient's in the ER. They're being rolled in. They have this chest pain that's radiating to their arms and their jaw and their neck and they're hypertensive and they're really uncomfortable. What do we do for them? So if they're brought to the ER by the ambulance, hopefully the ambulance will have taken care of a little bit of this. Uh, we want to give them some aspirin. What does aspirin do? It inhibits thromboxin, so it's going to prevent the platelets from clotting, right? You also want to give them nitroglycerin. What does nitroglycerin do? So that vasodilates the venous system, and so that actually increases the storage capacity of the veins. And we take advantage of that because then that kind of decreases the preload on the heart, and it prevents the heart from having more work to do, essentially, right? We kind of take the load off the heart by decreasing preload. There is one case where you don't really want to give nitroglycerin, though. Does anybody know what that is? So if someone actually has a right-sided MI, you don't want to give nitroglycerin because what will happen is if they have a right-sided MI, then they're not getting a whole lot of blood into the systemic circulation because they're not able to get it through the pulmonary vasculature and into the left atrium. So if you give them nitro and you further decrease the preload, then you can really cause shock because they're not going to get any blood to their tissues, right? And so in a right-sided MI, you don't want to give them nitroglycerin. And you might get asked about a patient who's hypotensive and then somebody gives them nitro and then their condition kind of deteriorates. That kind, that kind of might be a clue that they had a right-sided MI, okay? But in all other cases, you'd want to give them nitro. So we've given them aspirin, we've given them nitroglycerin, other things that we want to kind of immediately give them for comfort measures. Yeah, so you want to give them oxygen, you know, give them as much oxygen as possible because the problem is they're not getting oxygen to the heart. And you can also start these patients on IV morphine if you need to because they're in a lot of pain, okay? So you want to make them comfortable. And then the next step is going to really be diagnosis, okay? So what are the diagnostic methods for an MI? EKG should jump to the top of everybody's list. You want to get an EKG, all right? And this is something I didn't understand when I was studying for step one initially, but EKG findings in an MI kind of progress, just like the patho pathological findings progressed in an MI, the EKG findings progress as well. So what's the earliest finding in an EKG, maybe in the first few minutes after an MI? That's actually going to be peaked T waves. I like to think of it as the cells of the heart are kind of breaking open because they're undergoing necrosis, and so they're releasing all the potassium inside, and that causes hyperkalemia. And what do you see in hyperkalemia? Peak T waves. So that's just the early finding. What about in the next few minutes to hours? Um, what finding develops sort of after the peak T waves? So that would be the ST changes. This is where you can start to see the ST depression or the ST elevation. And then maybe days to weeks after an MI. So days to weeks after an MI, you would see these pathologic Q waves. However, it's important to know that these Q waves are only seen in transmural infarct, okay? So only STEMIs are going to lead to the pathologic Q waves. And a pathologic Q wave is a Q wave that's longer than one of those tiny little boxes in an EKG. 
That's how you know that someone has previously had an MI. And now the EKG findings are important because where the ST elevation or ST depression is, is indicative of where in the heart the damage is, right? And to know this, you have to kind of know where the leads are placed, what part of the heart they correspond to, and what blood supply, what the blood supply is for that part of the heart. So let's say somebody has a STEMI in leads 2, 3, and AVF. What part of the heart is affected? This would be considered an inferior infarct, right? And what artery supplies kind of the inferior border of the heart? That would be the right coronary artery. What about if there's an infarct in leads 1 and AVL? What kind of infarct is that considered? This is a lateral infarct. And so what's the artery that supplies these leads? That would be the left circumflex artery, okay, for 1 and AVL. And then finally, leads V1 through V6. And we can kind of divide these up and make it a little bit more specific. But in general, leads V1 through V6, what are they supplying? The anterior portion of the heart. And so the artery, this is the big one. This is the LAD, the left anterior descending artery. This is the one that unfortunately is dubbed the widowmaker. Okay, so you got the EKG. And is that all? Are you going to get anything else? Cardiac enzymes might be good, right? So what is the gold standard protein marker most specific for an MI? That would be troponin, right? And with these cardiac enzymes, it's good to know when their levels rise, when they peak, and how long they kind of stick around. So what are those numbers for troponin? So it rises around maybe anywhere from two to five hours. It's a little vague. It peaks at about one day, so at 24 hours, and then it remains elevated for actually up to a week. So that's quite a significant period of time. Now, what if within that one week period, somebody got an MI and then they got treated for that and then they developed a reinfarction? How would you know if they got a reinfarct? So you'd measure an enzyme called CKMB, right? The creatinine kinase that's specific for the myocardium. And why do you use that? Well, it has to know when it rises and when it falls. So this marker, CKMB, it starts rising in about 6 to 12 hours. It peaks at the same time as troponin in about 24 hours. But then it goes back to normal in 48 hours. And so since it goes back to normal so quickly, it's a really good way to know if somebody developed a reinfarct on top of their original one. Okay? Don't forget with these enzymes that if you're suspecting a heart attack, you don't just get them once. It's kind of ideal to trend them over the next 24-hour period by drawing them every six to eight hours. You want to see if they're rising, if they're falling, so you can kind of figure out where in the heart attack a person is. So we got the EKG, we got the enzymes. Is there any other testing you would consider? The chest x-ray is often taken um, just because it might show some signs of acute decompensated heart failure. So really what you might see in that case is pulmonary edema. Um, but that's kind of more clinical. You probably won't get tested on that. All right, so the patient came in. We gave them some meds. 
but we still have to kind of manage what's going on, right? We can't just give them aspirin and nitro and call it a day. So what kind of determines how we're going to manage these patients? It depends on if it's a STEMI or an NSTEMI, right? What is the protocol for a STEMI? Yeah, a STEMI warrants percutaneous coronary intervention, right? So these are the patients that you have to rush to the cath lab and you have to get a stent so that you can dilate that artery right away, okay? Uh, They say door to balloon time is 90 minutes. So 90 minutes from when they walk into the ER, they have to be into a cath lab. But what if you can't do a PCI? What if the hospital that you go to doesn't have a cath lab? And what if it's not close enough to another facility that does? This is when you'd want to give systemic thrombolysis, right, by using the tissue plasminogen activator or TPA. It's not ideal, and you do want to give it in a time-sensitive manner as well. Definitely after 12 hours, the risk of intracranial bleeding is going to supersede the benefits um, of the thrombolysis. And so you want to be careful with that. It's not ideal, but if you just can't get a PCA, then TPA is going to have to do for a STEMI. What about NSTEMI? Again, remember, we've already done aspirin, we've done the nitro, we've given them morphine, oxygen. What other meds do you want to start them on? So heparin, right, as an anticoagulant. And what else? Beta blockers. Beta blockers are really good because they decrease cardiac contractility, so that decreases oxygen consumption. And they're also antiarrhythmics, if you remember, and so that can be protective as well. And then in the long term, you want to start kind of two more meds. So ACE inhibitors, what do ACE inhibitors do? They do act as diuretics, but in this case, we're specifically looking for the fact that they, for whatever reason, through some unknown mechanism, they prevent myocardial reconstruction. And so that prevents long-term damage to the heart. And then you also want to start these patients on statins. Anyone who's had an acute coronary event or even a stroke or even a transient ischemic attack is a candidate for long-term therapy with statins. So a very commonly asked question is which of the drugs that we've mentioned so far have been proven to reduce mortality in heart disease? The answer is the beta blockers and the ACE inhibitors, okay? A lot of these drugs provide symptomatic relief, um, they can make patients feel better, but only beta blockers and ACE inhibitors have been shown in studies to reduce mortality in cardiac patients. So at this point, we've really come a long way, right? We've kind of talked through what's going on in the patient's body, how to diagnose the patient, how to manage the patient, but are we done? No, we're not. There are a few commonly tested complications of myocardial infarction, okay? And so these are really good to be familiar with. So let's say that somebody comes in for a myocardial infarction and let's say it was a STEMI, they went to the cath lab, they got stented, but then within the first day, unfortunately, they pass away. What's the most likely cause of death in these patients? It's going to be an arrhythmia, okay? Arrhythmia is really the most important cause of death in patients, not just right after the MI, But oftentimes while it's happening, so it can cause sudden cardiac death in patients, and this can be a cause of death of a patient at home or in the ambulance on the way to the hospital as well. So it can be really tragic. Now, what if 
let's say the patient's a few days after an MI at this point, and they're complaining of this sharp chest pain, and they kind of feel better when they lean forward, and when you do an exam, you hear a little bit of a friction rub. What would that be a sign of? So this is fibrinous pericarditis. Remember that um, at the same time, a few days after the MI, like one to five days after the MI, this is when coagulation necrosis is happening. This is when the neutrophils are infiltrating. And so kind of parallel that to the fibrinous pericarditis that you might find. And then let's go a little bit further out beyond the five-day mark, a few days to maybe about two weeks after the MI. There's several complications that can happen at this point, right? And again, what is happening pathologically at this time? Remember the granulation tissue? The heart is kind of soft, yellow-brown because of that granulation tissue. So that makes things weak, and things can weaken, walls can weaken, and things can actually rupture. So what happens with the chordae tendinae rupture? What complication do you get there? Mitral regurgitation, okay, because the valve isn't working. What about if the septum ruptures, the interventricular septum? That can cause severe pain as well as a new onset murmur. And can the ventricular wall rupture? Absolutely. Um, what happens in this case is that a pseudoaneurysm can actually form. So a very thin wall with just that granulation tissue on the outside. And how would the patient present if the ventricular wall ruptured? So again, they'd have pretty severe pain, and they'd also be hypotensive because they'd be bleeding, and they could even get cardiac tamponade, okay? So then that brings you back to Beck's triad, the hypotension, the jugular venous distension, and the muffled heart sounds. That would be a sign of pericardial tamponade. And then let's say now we're weeks to months out after all the scar formation and everything. What could happen now? So the most famous one is probably Dressler syndrome. Um, this is autoimmune pericarditis. It has to do with antigen-presenting cells presenting certain myocardial antigens to the immune system. Um, and so that's called Dressler syndrome. And then the other one, it's not a pseudoaneurysm, but it's a true ventricular aneurysm. So this is now bounded by all of the walls that make up the myocardium all of the layers, I mean to say. Um, and then another complication of the aneurysm is that you might get a mural thrombus that starts to form in here. And so, again, thrombus is a recipe for danger. So, really, that's all I have for myocardial infarction. That is quite a beast to cover. It's quite a beast to study and understand. But it's really important that you understand what's going on at the physiological level, at the pathological level, and then I think it kind of makes sense what we do in terms of diagnosis and management if you understand what's going on at the baseline. So if you are still listening to this review, thank you for your time. I hope you got something out of this. I hope it was really helpful. You can visit our website to post any questions, comments, concerns, and that's all I have for now, but I'll talk to you soon. In the meantime, if you're sitting there crying SOS for help while studying, what you really might need is a spoonful of sugar to help the medicine go down. <laughs>